4: Crime, LGBT thriller.
0: You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts: Eric Shapiro, David North, Martino, John Copenhagen, and Al Warren. 106.5 FM Los Angeles 102.3 FM Riverside And one oh
1: five O AM Palm Springs well, We've got the main event here. We've got the star on the line now. And uh, we're going to be talking to her about her book Murder by Milkshake. It's an astonishing true story of adultery, arsenic, and a charismatic killer. Um, So we've got Eve Lazarus. Thank you for being here with us today, Eve.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: So Eve, how did you get into writing about true crime? Oh, true crime
5: actually found me. I, I started writing about history, like the stories behind old houses and what happened to them and the idea that they kind of had a genealogy or a social history like a person. And when I was, doing this is a, a book i wrote in 2007 called at home with history and when i was looking at these stories I, i'd start with the archives and you know look at these i'd rather i'd start with the houses and i'd look at these gorgeous old houses in shaughnessy and uh, it, it, that had been around and, and sort of stand outside and skulk around in the hedgerows and, and wonder what had happened there a, a hundred years ago and i'd go to the archives and find out not very much not nothing that was particularly exciting anyway and so I started with a story, and I started um, looking at areas like the West End and Mount Pleasant, and basically working class areas, and that had sort of you know everyday homes and and things like that. And I found these fantastic stories, and I started finding stories about bootleggers and brothels and corrupt cops and murders that had happened in people's kitchens, you know, fifty years ago. And and I, I just really got interested in these stories, and, and that kind of evolved into um, a couple of books. It, it became Sensational uh, Victoria in 2012, and um, and then Sensational Vancouver in in 2014, and really looks at these kind of crime history, I guess, of Vancouver. And each book kind of led into another. When I was uh, researching murders in houses for Sensational. Uh, I found a a couple of cold cases that that really bothered me and I couldn't let go of them and started researching them and and that kind of morphed into my book Cold Case Vancouver Uh, when I was researching one of those stories um, it was a a 1944 murder that happened uh, not far from where I live in North Vancouver and this 24 year old uh, woman's body was found in near the West Vancouver Cemetery and uh, when I started digging around and looking at that murder i found that uh, they'd gone to the Vancouver police department and uh, to investigate and they'd brought over this inspector Vance and to do forensics and i read that and i thought wow we were doing forensics back in the, the 40s and when i started uh, when i went to the police museum and started really digging into it i found that he was doing it way earlier and and Vancouver was kind of one of the, the leading in, in forensics in North America and he was um, the the only poli- you know scientist connected to a, a police department at that time so so that became blood sweat and fear uh, kind of look into uh, a number of major crimes that he had solved and worked on between 1907 and 1949 and but it was still very much in the history of Vancouver um, as with cold case and um, very much looking at murders that had happened and how the, the period of time sort of affected the murder, whether it, whether it was the depression or the world war or corrupt cops or, or whatever it happened to be.
1: But I, I thought Vancouver would be crime-free.
5: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when I first moved to Vancouver in the 80s, I thought, wow, it was such a, a beautiful, story, you know, city. But you know, all the history was kind of these streets named up after old white men and forestries and tourism and it was pretty boring actually and then when I started scraping you know, some of the surface here and found some really fascinating crime history of Vancouver you know, it, it just made it much more interesting
6: I used uh, one of your stories from Cold Case Vancouver The Babes in the Woods
5: oh, as, right. as
6: refer- reference for one of my episodes on dark poutine um, can you talk a bit about about that uh, about that case?
5: Well, thank you for referencing that. Yeah, that's a, a fascinating case and it really goes to Vancouver's icons and Vancouver's Dark Side, you know, it happened in Stanley Park that you know that what eight hundred thousand tourists visit every year and, you know, it's our kind of leading life and and back in nineteen fifty three some parks workers park board workers were clearing scrub in this really isolated place near uh, Beaver Lake in Stanley Park and this guy stepped on a skull basically he heard his crunching and and looked down and it was a skull and um, he went home and for some unknown reason slept on it and then came back the next day and called police and uh, police came out to the scene and they found two skeletons two children's skeletons uh, under a, a woman's coat and various other things like a lunchbox and a woman's shoe and, and so forth and forensics was um, pretty basic in, in that year at least and they came and they counted the layers of leaves and decided that it had been you know the bodies had been there probably six years so 1953 so to 1947 and um, they even though um, sex is really difficult to determine from skeleton remains they decided that it was a, a boy and a girl. So they went down this track for 50 years investigating you know, trying to identify these kids and, and find out who murdered them, uh, but they were looking for a missing boy and a girl. And when DNA came out in the 90s and they retested the, the bones, they found that it was actually two brothers. So had they known this, they may have solved it.
6: Yes, a super fascinating case, and um, interestingly, um, somehow Clifford Olson's mother was involved in that case uh, early on, which is was always a weird thing to me. I don't know if you knew that.
5: Yeah, I think that's in the book. I I think she had um, phoned in a tip from Mary. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. About the children.
6: And for anybody who doesn't know, Clifford Olson, what would have been an infant at the time and went on to be one of Canada's most notorious serial killers.
5: Mm. But, you know, when you're looking at the time period again, and I think that was really important in this case, because they've always thought it was the mother that killed them, and it may well have been. And... But it was interesting for me to look back it was just past the war it was you know women had been laid off these you know fairly well-paying jobs you know the trades and things and there was very little safety net for them unmarried mothers were just scorned and um uh, there were a number when i was researching this and looking through the um vancouver police department annual reports for that year there were three other murder suicides from mothers um one had thrown her children off a bridge and jumped off after them. And two other mothers had um, just put all their heads in the gas oven and, and killed themselves that way. Um, they were the only ones mentioned because there was a murder involved, but there was no way of determining how many suicides happened as well from women that were so desperate. Ooh. So it may well have been a, a woman who was you know, really desperate and, and did kill her children. But, um, you know, they've never, never been able to identify them.
1: So now now you've written uh, Murder by Malkshake. Um, How did you find that story?
5: Well, I first um, heard about it back in the 90s when I was visiting the, the Vancouver Police Museum. They had a true crime exhibit that featured um, the, the Castellani family and... Uh, the, the story of the, the arsenic Murder, and I was fascinated by that, and I even included it in my book at Home with History, just filtered through the house where it had happened. And a number of people have written about it, written chapters about it over the years, and it never really occurred to me to write a book about it, uh, and until two things happened. and I'd written a, a blog post. A, I have a blog called Every Place Has a Story, and I just written up a post about it a couple of years after. Um, at home with history, had come out. And just talking about the murder, and and lucky for me, I I made a mistake. I said that um, Lolly, who was Rini's mistress, had a daughter, and in fact she had a son, and Debbie Wilson wrote to me to to correct me and say that was my husband, Don, that was her son, and he's been looking for Janine, the Castellani's daughter, for nearly 50 years, you know, and did I know where she was? And I said, oh, no, unfortunately I don't. I'd love to find her too. And then I had my book launch at the Police Museum for Blood, Sweat and Fear in in 2017, and Janine came. And she brought her her daughter Ashley, and we met up then, and we met up the the following week, and Cloverdale over coffee and got together many, many times after that. And it became very important to me to tell the story from Janine's perspective, how the murder affected her, Um, rather than uh, from her father. And do you want me to tell you, uh, uh, just talk a bit about the story?
1: Yeah, yeah, maybe give us a brief rundown. Yeah, give us a rundown on it.
5: Okay, so it was 1965, and Rini Castellani was uh, a minor celebrity with CKNW, uh, a local radio station that's still in Vancouver. And he fell in love with Lolly, the 20-something receptionist, and he decided to murder his wife, Esther, his 40-year-old wife, Esther, with arsenic-flavored milkshakes so he could marry Lolly. And he nearly got away with it and it wasn't for the rigorous you know, research and, that was done by Esther's doctor after she died and who had treated her for the seven weeks that she was in hospital. And he really would have got away with it. And Janine, who was 11 at the time that her father murdered her mother, became the collateral damage in all of this. And what all the accounts have failed to do was sort of talk about what happened to her after the murder. Everything seems to have stopped at the murder. And I was very, very interested in, in kind of that whole 60s period and how the time period affected what was going on. And what happened after he went to jail and what happened to Janine. So so that's very much a prominent part of the book as well.
1: With these stories, what is it particularly that will grab you enough to go write a book? Because you hear and go through tons of stories when you're going through different things. What is it about a story that uh, holds you?
5: Well, in this particular instance, it was Janine. Her story was so compelling. Um, It turned out that after her father went Jail for capital murder, so he was on death row. She was sent to live with his mistress, who was only 26 at the time and, and had a five-year-old child herself, and she was financially responsible for Janine. He, even though he was on death row, still had custody of her and wouldn't allow her to see her grandparents, Esther's parents. And uh, so she was completely cut off from all family. She was taken out of the school that she knew. Put into another one and told never to talk about what had happened. Uh, and then five years went by. She lived with Lolly and Don as a family for five years, and then Lolly found a new man. So Janine was sort of taken and dropped like a lost dog off to Rinne's, um sister in North Vancouver, and they were never talked about. Don, having lived you know together as brother and sister with Janine, having babysat him for four, five years, and becoming really close. Um, they didn't know what had happened to each other. And, and one of the great things about this book that I'm really proud of is it brought them back together again. So there were a number of really compelling things. Um, the time period, as I mentioned before, was really interesting to me because, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is, okay, you fall in love with someone else. Why wouldn't you get a divorce? You know, why would you do something as drastic and diabolical? I mean, you know, it's just torturous. You know, death that Esther faced through our stick, um, rather than get a divorce so that sort of led me to uh, really research divorce laws and it, it turns out that it was really really difficult before 1968 to get a divorce and it required a lot of public shaming and um, uh, they were part of the Catholic Church so that was another issue so I, I guess it became just easier to kill her and I, I found that sort of aspect of it really fascinating and The other aspect I found really interesting, too, was the time period of this murder, which happened in 1965, just really, really fascinating, and it allowed me to go and research the 60s, which was a period that I've never really looked into, and it was such a time of cataclysmic change in Vancouver. It was, you know, the early 60s, you've still got um, this emerging beatnik culture, but Vancouver was still very much stuck in the 50s back then it was a church going sort of culture, you didn't drink on a Sunday women wore frocks and it just reminds me of very much leave it to beaver kind of atmosphere and so you've got that where really having an affair would have been quite scandalous but then you've got this change coming that comes in sort of the 1967, 68 and you've got these Beings that are coming up from San Francisco and you've got hippies moving in and you've got, um, uh, just, uh, draft dodgers coming in and Vancouver's just in this massive change.
6: There was a lot of change happening in Vancouver at the time. There was a uh, uh, Hollywood sanatorium, for example, over in New West where uh, the LSD was initially uh, introduced into the culture here. And uh, acid Al uh, Hubbard was doing his his thing with people like Cary Grant were coming to, to trip on acid and all that kind of stuff. And so all this was happening just a little after... Uh, after this whole story with Renee. So um, I believe that society found its freedom, but uh, it, it, Esther was, was kind of uh, a victim of, of the time.
5: In, in a sense, you know, his whole conviction was based on circumstantial evidence,
6: mm-hmm. which was
5: also really, really interesting. And, and when I talk to lawyers and, and things like that, and saying, well, what would happen today? And it's also a bit of a toss-up whether he'd be convicted now and the thought was back then that he was convicted more for his infidelity than for the actual murder which I Mm -hmm. found really really fascinating and you know you sort of think well why didn't he just get a divorce and um, when I started looking into divorce laws from the 60s, it was really, really difficult uh, until about 1968 when the divorce laws changed. Before that, it had to be through adultery. Both parties had to agree. And there was a whole lot of public shaming that went on. So for this sort of arrogant psychopath that Reini was, a divorce would have been really publicly shaming for him and it would have tarnished the image that he was trying to project. And so murder must have seemed like a much easier uh, way for him to get out of it.
6: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Renee was in love with his celebrity being a narcissist the way he was, um, especially, you know, all the stunts that he would pull. He even talked about, uh, I believe some sultan was buying Vancouver at one point.
5: Oh, that was such a great stunt. It was, um, at CKW, as all radio stations were back then, they were so hungry for ratings and they would do anything to, to boost their ratings and be number one and CKW was known as Top Dog. Um, their competitor, CKLG, came up with this amazing stunt. They, they, there was a TV show called, um, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And they brought up the guy that was fronting that, and had him just uh, go around and give out cash to people, and uh, it was doing really well. And and CKNW were desperate to to sort of match this and do better, and they came up with this crazy idea that um, they would bring in the Maharaja of Alibaba, who was coming to buy BC, and they put uh, they. Hired Reini for the job, and they dressed him up as the Maharaja. They paid for a suite at the Western Bayshore, which was new and swanky back then. They had uh, a couple of um, women that were on staff. They used to, you know, how they do that—the the food demonstrations and supermarkets and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Uh, well, they dressed them up as dancing girls, harem girls, and they hired a driver who was this twenty-two-year-old kid that worked in the promotions department and dressed him up as well to, to drive Rini around. And um, for two weeks they went to football games and they turned up at clubs like the Palomar and the Cave and he gave out money. And uh, this whole stick was, you know, the Maharaja has come to buy British Columbia. And um, people were incensed. They really believed this. And uh, they started making signs saying, keep BC British. You know, <laughs> it was yeah. so white back then. And um, it, it's just, this promotion was just this huge success and, and just incredibly bizarre. And it still dug up some photos from the library that had them from that time and from the newspaper. And I mean, it, would never, it was incredibly racist. It would never fly now, but it was huge back
6: then. And these and were the kind of things, yeah, these were the kind of things that he was known for as well.
5: Well, after he did that, it was so successful that they hired him on full-time. And uh, he was uh, mainly in promotions, but he did a lot of the broadcasting as well. And Janine had told me that um, she and her mum had gone to the Beatles concert in August 1964. And Rini, her dad, had got the tickets and that he was one of the broadcasters with Jack Cullen, who was quite um, famous back then in the day. And I thought, oh, really? That's amazing. And then I found this recording, and he was. I mean, it was Jack Wasserman and Jack Webster and, um, Jack Cullen and Rene Castellani doing this iconic concert. And, um, yeah, poor Janine, she'd, um, Was eleven years old with with her mum, and uh, there were twenty odd thousand girls all screaming, pre teenagers and young teenage girls. And this girl behind her was screaming so much she threw up all over Janine, and uh, Janine (laughs) and her mum ended up in the bathroom wiping off vomit for the entire, I think, twenty two minute concert.
6: Now, um, after Renee or during Renee's court the court case against Renee during his his trial. Uh, Wasn't uh, Janine used as leverage uh, by the defense?
5: Um, Not so much leverage. She was the only defense witness called. So the first Hmm. trial, he offered no defense, no witnesses, and didn't take stand. Right. And he was charged with capital murder. But it went to appeal, as capital cases would. And um, on the, the next trial, he took stand for three hours. And then they put Janine on the stand. And Janine was 13 by now and she was coached. And I got hold of the testimony, the transcript, from the, the trial and I read it back to her when I was doing the, the book. And I said, was this, you know, read something out? And I say, well, is this true? No, that didn't happen. I was told to say that. So she was actually coerced to, to commit perjury, which was really, really shocking. and and something i know that she's still quite bitter about
6: yeah when i met her uh, she mentioned that to me and and how you could see the pain in her uh, in her eyes and in in her voice when she speaks about that time and Mm. talked about her dad
5: well i think part of it was you know she was 11 years old when her mother died and she had no one else you know he Mm -hmm. was everything and she believed him, and she believed he didn't do it right up until she was in her early 20s. And I think, you know, when she discovered that he did, uh, it was horrendous for her, as, as you can imagine.
1: And, and I was going to say, now, now he, he poisoned her um, throughout a period of time. That's not really common um, for male killers, is it?
5: not. Well, at least, you know, in the last century or so. But arsenic was um, commonly used to, to off someone you didn't like or, you know, an inconvenient relative or co-worker or something in 1700s and 1800s. And it's really, really a diabolically clever murder weapon. It's um, When it's given in small doses, you know, it mimics the flu and, and viruses. And, um, and that's what people think it is. So when Esther died, normally, you know, if not for this doctor who couldn't let it go, and her death would have gone down as, you know, like a death from a virus or something. So even, you know, when I talked to a toxicologist and, and said would this be possible to happen today, and he said, Oh yeah, we might miss, you know, one in ten, maybe one in twenty poisonings because, you know, who would think to suspect arsenic? Hmm.
1: Well, I, I, I just think that's kind of... So why, what, what was the outcome? Like, why did he want her dead? Wait. And why... Sorry, go on. I was just going to say, why wouldn't he just divorce her? Or why did he choose that way to kill her? It seemed like a really long, drawn-out process.
5: Well, when I talked to um, Heather Burke, she's a forensic psychologist, about that, she thought that her, her impression was that he wasn't trying to kill her initially that he was just trying to make her a bit sick uh, so he could, you know, she wouldn't nag him and he could spend a lot more time with Lolly. And the the other thing you've got to remember was arsenic was really, really easy to get back then. It was in everything, you know, the weed killers and rat poison and, and all of that sort of stuff. So it wasn't uncommon that you would have, you know, a jar of arsenic, rat poison in your sink, which he did, or weed killer in his case. Uh, so what, Heather thought and I tend to agree with her as she kept getting sicker and sicker and she went to a doctor and she had all these tests done and no one could figure out what was going on. Uh, When she went to Dr. Moscovich, the internalist, and he put her into hospital, he had four different specialists come and consult on her and put her through 120 different tests and still no one could figure out what was going on. So I think Reena got really emboldened then. Lolly was probably putting pressure on him to leave his wife, and I'm sure he told her that they were getting a divorce. And um, it it just emboldened him, and I I think he probably thought, well, I might as well just do this and get away with it. It's much easier than divorce, divorce which comes with all this baggage and public shaming and would tarnish his image, uh, much easier
1: just to kill her. Hmm. Well, so what was what was the response in in, in the to the public um, after they discovered he was, uh, you know, he'd actually murdered his wife? Did they were how did the public? Did they still like him, or did they? Does he have fans?
5: Well, I talked to a lot of people that knew him when he worked at CKNW in the '60s. People like George Garrett, the um, reporter, and Norm Groman. Um, he's quite a, a well-known figure, and they knew him quite well and worked with him. I talked to people, because he got out of jail, he was fully paroled in 10 years and was working in the community even while he was in jail. I talked to people who hired him, um, people who knew him then, and asked them all what they thought of him. And they, they all, every one of them, really, really liked him. They all said what a great guy he was, how smart he was, how charismatic he was. And I'd say to all of them, do you think he did it? And every one of them said, oh yeah. There was no one that doubted he did it. And they didn't really care. And I just found that really startling.
1: Wow. So, (laughs) uh, but we see that going on in other areas in, in, in life, in politics too, right? So. There must have been something about him that they they really really liked some charisma.
5: Yeah, and I, I guess he did get married again, uh, in fact. But before that, uh, you know, I found his life in jail really really interesting. I did find someone that uh, uh, had been in jail with him that could sort of talk a bit more about that from from the inside, but. Within a couple of years, he was working for community services in Abbotsford. He was at Masquee Prison, which was a brand-new prison back then, and mainly um, for, for drug addicts and drug dealers. And he was one of the few that wasn't part of that. But it was a brand-new prison, and he uh, would go and work at community services in Abbotsford during the day and come back to prison at night. And this went on for a couple of years, and um, the radio station, the, the guy that um, was in charge, Bob Singleton, of the station in Abbotsford and was also on the board of Masquey, uh, had him come and do promotions for their station, like the Abbotsford Air Show and stuff like that, while he was still in prison, and hired him when he was paroled, just 10 years. Now, this is the guy that got you know, charged with capital murder twice, Escaped the death penalty by two weeks when it was commuted, given life imprisonment, and here he is out in the community within a couple of years and fully paroled within 10. Um, Janine remembers, you know, um, after a a couple of years that he would get weekend parole and he would bring a new woman around each time or he'd say, you know, come and see me in Abbotsford, and he'd be staying with a different woman. Like, it was almost like these women would check him out of jail for the weekend. And, um, you know, by 10 years, when he was paroled, he he married again and moved to Nanaimo and started up another radio station with a couple of people and and lived there for for a couple of years until he actually died of pancreatic cancer at age 56. Karma.
1: Yeah. Mm. Wow. Uh, what do you want people to get out of your book? Like, when they read this, what do you hope they take away?
5: Um, I'd like them to see it from a female point of view. Uh, I'd like them to see it from Janine's point of view. And I'm hoping that they'll also see from Esther's point of view. You know, as much as possible, I've, I've tried to give her a voice in all of this. You know, describe what she was like and what she went through and, um, and all of that sort of thing. So, yeah.
1: Oh. Wow. Now, do you have a website or uh, anything that you like to have your fans go to to find you? Or?
5: Yeah, I've got a website. It's EveLazarus.com. That's E-V-E-L-A-Z-A-R-U-S.com. Uh, I've got a blog there as well. Every place has a story. And a, a podcast, a true crime podcast um, that, was, uh, that is called Blood, Sweat and Fear, and it was modeled after my book of the same name.
1: Wow, sounds interesting! Um, great. Now we're going to have this book posted on our website as well as your website, and uh, recommend everybody pick this book up. It's it's a great thrill ride. Thank you. Um, our guest has been Eve Lazarus, and the book is Murder by Milkshake. Thank you for being here. Thanks
5: right? so much for having me.
6: Thanks so much, Eve. It's been great.
3: To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission
1: has been completed. The end. By George, he's got it.
0: It is the end. How will you.
5: You're lying to me.
1: I'll be back.
4: That's Stamps.com. Code program.
0: You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com.
2: Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well,
0: good night.